At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food Revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Robert Colangelo of Green Sense Farms to talk about his experience with financing indoor vertical farming. Robert is a scientist, author, and environmental entrepreneur who founded several leading market-based environmental concerns. Currently, he serves as host of Green Sense Radio and founding farmer and CEO of Green Sense Farms. Robert is recognized as a national expert and an authoritative source on brownfield redevelopment, sustainability, and indoor vertical farming. He is the author of several books and numerous reports on, and articles on the subject. He has appeared on national and local TV and radio programs, been quoted in national and local newspapers, and has testified in Congress in support of environmental legislation. Welcome to the show today, Robert. Greg, thank you so much. Uh, uh, what, what a nice introduction. Well, thanks. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? I'm a serial entrepreneur. I started early on in my career in the environmental industry. I've always focused on the environment and tried to look for market-based solutions. A lot of environmental issues are driven by legislation Mm -hmm. and therefore have false markets. They're created by the government. What I tried to look at is coming up with a solution that was more sustainable and had economic benefits. So Mm -hmm. my last venture was brownfield redevelopment. Mm. I would buy contaminated industrial parks, clean them up, reposition them for a higher and better use, typically for residential or commercial, Uh and did this because there was no laws uh, dictating that you had to do it. Matter of fact, we worked in the absence of legislation, (laughs) but what, what what we would do is take this contaminated, unproductive land and put it back to productive use. Uh And that was good for the environment. It was also good for the economy. So those are the kinds of solutions that I like. And I started out at Argonne National Labs doing a variety of different research, Uh, went on, worked for a consulting company. Uh, Mm -hmm. My master's degree is in hydrogeology. I uh, did a number of groundwater cleanup for companies that built landfills. Uh And then uh, started to get involved with property assessments looking at contaminated property and evaluating what the degree of uh, contamination is present 
and the diminution in value caused by that contamination. Oh, so wow. I wrote a couple of books on that subject. Wow. Wrote a book on valuation of impaired properties and really got heavily involved in the brownfield business. But mm -hmm. prior to that, I did a stint in the Soviet Union for seven years. Doing what? Uh, well, I worked with a lot of the uh, folk at Argonne uh, uh -huh. doing technology transfer, looking at a lot of the uh, uh, declassified uh, defense technologies uh -huh. that had had environmental applications. Oh, uh, our, our goal was to uh, make sure that the Russian scientists stayed in Russia and see if that we can we can help them start businesses around the environment. So it was a fascinating opportunity. I learned a lot about international wow, business. Wow, no kidding. And was in the Soviet Union at a time where they were intoxicated with freedom and then hung over with the reality of freedom. So I saw a lot of change in a short time. Oh, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. Wow. So I have some questions. Before we even get into the IVF or the indoor vertical farming, I have some questions for you. You got to testify in Congress. What was that about? Well, one of the ventures I started was a magazine called Brownfield News. And uh -huh. from Brownfield News, I started the National Brownfield Association. It was a group of property owners, developers, investors, a large array of professional support service mm -hmm. providers and government. And we built this association up to about 1,500 members, 22 state chapters. Each chapter was, uh, was led by a mayor who had these blighted properties in their city and they mm -hmm. wanted them re redeveloped and put back to productive use. So wow. I spent a lot of time with governors and mayors and senators and representatives promoting the value of brownfield redevelopment. Mm -hmm. And I testified in Congress a number of times on why putting these properties back to productive use was Seems good valuable. for the economy, yeah. good for the environment. And that was a bipartisan issue. You know, we oh, got yeah, support yeah, exactly. on both sides. Nobody's going, you know, it was motherhood and apple pie, you know, <laughs> clean up these sites, right. create jobs, put them back to productive use. Got to have that excellent experience. No kidding. So, You've used the word multiple times, brownfield. Can you just say something about that so people know what you're talking about? Well, in, in the farming industry, it's when your crops die and it goes brown. But from <laughs> what I used to deal with, it's, it's a contaminated piece of property whose redevelopment is hampered due to a perceived or real liabilities. Like? So basically, uh, if you've got an old factory, the factory goes bankrupt, mm -hmm. and now the factory is sitting idle and it used chemicals in its process, and now everybody's afraid to go in there and touch it because those chemicals could have migrated in the groundwater and soil uh -huh. and become very complicated to assess the cost of cleanup and the devaluation of that property from those past activities. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a series of legal and financial liabilities that shroud that property. That's what a brownfield is. Yeah. And you still have those they're like perspiration stains dotting the uh, oh yes yes yeah the industrial landscape, especially in the Midwest, the old cold part of the oh, country, yeah. uh, has lots of these, and that's that's where I worked. Wow. So all right, so you have all of that. That's an amazing background, and now you're all of a sudden in indoor vertical farming. Now I realize that it's probably not all of a sudden. So can you kind of give us a roadmap of how you went from brownfields to growing food inside? As I was running the National Brownfield Association, we won a number of EPA training grants, and the last one was to build sustainable cities. And what, mm. what, as I was developing brownfields, I thought, well, this is great, but it's not good enough. You know, if we just take these blighted properties, put them back to productive use, it's good, but it doesn't stop brownfields from being created. So right. I thought, maybe our pitch should be green on brown. Let's put green projects on these brownfield sites, and now you've solved mm, both ends of the equation. You right. stopped brownfields from being started, and you start to green up cities. So I won this grant, and I was Ooh, putting on nice. workshops around the country with uh, major mayors in, in the prime cities, New York, Boston, L.A., uh -huh. Chicago, Seattle, San Diego. And what we were talking about is how are we going to rebuild our communities oh, and yeah. build our cities in a sustainable manner? Mm -hmm. And so I, w I would get the top experts in the cities that dealt with transportation, waste, water, energy, food, uh, the built environment, mm -hmm. financing. And so everywhere I went, I'd meet a different group of experts. And even though I've been in the environmental field my whole career, 
I was seeing all these new technologies and innovations and things I knew nothing about. And I thought, boy, this is ripe for a radio show. So I started Green Sense Radio Show with the idea that there, there's all this new green technology coming on and it's fascinating. Uh-huh. And I wanted to be an honest broker of information for the public to help, you know, to, to, to clarify this, simplify it, and present it in an easy to understand entertaining format. So I started Green Sense Radio and food kept coming up. Uh, you know, <laughs> you urban agriculture, yeah. urban farming. Yeah. So I thought, I really like the food space. I don't think this is a fad. I think it's a trend. And so I started to do some research on aquaponics, hydroponics, Ooh, the combination right. of aqua and hydra, aeroponics. And so I looked at all these emerging technologies, uh, settled on one, really did a deep dive on that, and came up with a, a methodology and a process that worked, and then scaled it up and built the largest you know, indoor vertical farm in Portage, Indiana. And so it was. Uh, wow, really? You know, after six years of hard work, we were an overnight success. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. And, and, you know, we're still struggling. We're still humbled by the idea of taming nature. Trying to bring nature indoor mm-hmm. year round oh, yeah. is, is a challenge. And we get better at it every day. We have the best people on our team. We have very uh, skilled engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, my partner, Carl, is a CPA. We have a attorney who runs our investment and management relations. Oh, so nice. we have an excellent management team. And what I see as a challenge in indoor vertical farming is you have three major types of people going into it. Uh-huh. You've got dreamers who want a different lifestyle. And uh-huh. they do it because they want this relaxed farming lifestyle. Yep. You've, you've got farm, you've got <laughs> Hold farmers. on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Relaxed farming lifestyle? <laughs> Well, that's what they, that, that's the romantic that's side the, of indoor vertical farming. That's the dream. Okay, farming, I got right? it. I got it. Yeah. Right? It's a dream, right? That you're going to, you know, grow your hair long and grow plants indoors. The second group I see out there are farmers who are very technical or, or growers who, who, who know about plant physiology and growing, but they know very little bit about business or sales. And then the third group is business people who see this as a great market opportunity. But they don't know anything about science or business. Yep. And and so all those are really set up to fail. You you really need a management team oh, yeah. that is made up of business people, growers, and scientists, and people that can communicate mm-hmm. uh, between all those languages to be successful in indoor vertical farming. Right. Cool. So let's imagine that I am standing at the front door of Green Sense Farms. Tell me what what it's going to look like as I walk up to the building and then walk inside and just give me an experience in words of, of what that is like. Paint you a picture of Green Sense Farms. Yeah. Well, one of the limitations to radio is that <laughs> you only are using you know one sense, it's hearing. So I encourage everybody to Google 9 billion bowls, a fantastic Ooh. interactive online report produced by Thomson Reuters. And in there, it talks about how are we going to feed a population in 2050 uh-huh. when, when uh, uh, it's at, at 9 billion people. And in there is a very solution-oriented report about how we are going to meet that challenge of feeding a growing global population with less arable land and, and less resources. And uh, we are featured in there, and there's a three-minute clip that shows our farm. So if I uh, wow. cannot paint a good picture, yeah. you, you could uh, go Google that and you'll have an excellent example of what we do. Perfect. So in general, that, that, hold on. we built... Hold on before you go. Nine billion bowls? Yes. Okay, There's. I didn't come up with a specific website for it. It's a lot of, It got a lot of media clips, but you, it looks like there's a YouTube video on it. See, if you type number nine... Ah, number nine. Billion uh, bowls. Nine billion bowls. Let's see what it comes that comes up with. And the first one I get is Thomson Reuters nine billion bowls. Yep, that's the one. Yeah, click on that. All right. Cool. Okay, good. And this is just a fantastic report. You'll see it's got interactive graphs. It's got nice. audio. It's got visual. It connects the dots between activities and Perfect. food growth. 
find this to just be anybody who's interested in food should uh -huh. read this report. All right, cool. Super. So you were going to give us a walkthrough. So I will try my best to paint a great picture. So if you close your eyes and you imagine walking into a building. Hold on. And within. Hold in on. The, if you're driving your car right now, don't close your eyes. <laughs> so, if you're so, if you're working in your garden, you can close your eyes. But uh, yeah, go ahead. So, so you walk into the building, uh -huh. which is a large industrial building with about a 30-foot internal ceiling clearance. Uh -huh. And so you've got this vacuous 20,000-square-foot industrial space wow. with a building inside the building. And that building that's inside the building is made of cooler panels. Oh. They're 24 feet tall. So if you walked into oh. one of these large walk-in coolers, uh -huh. we've basically built our grow room out of these uh, these tall panels mm -hmm. that are highly insulated so that it keeps all the air and plants in and it keeps everything else out. And when you go inside that room, we have a series of grow towers. Each tower has 60 4 by 8 foot tubs. We have anywhere from 7 to 14 towers in in the grow room we have two grow rooms and each of those grow rooms is climate controlled we control the temperature we control the humidity we control the lights wow. we control the co2 we control the water the nutrients in that room we understand our plants and we give our plants everything they need to grow perfectly mm -hmm. day after day mm -hmm. and we have two climate controlled rooms one for our lettuce which grows at a cooler, drier temperature, right. and one for our other leafy greens that can, that grow at a hotter, a more humid condition. Wow! So and I'm looking... in there are stacking oh. towers. Uh huh. The towers have 10 to 14 la layers. The lettuce is much more tightly packed. We pump water into each tub. It gravity drains. The water is treated and filtered, and then it goes through our fertigation system. And the pH is adjusted, the EC is adjusted, and the fertilizer is charged, and it goes to the next tower. And it just keeps recirculating through. Interesting. All done through a computerized system. Uh -huh. and, and we have sensors and monitors, and we collect data. So if we get any type of a hiccup, we could go back and look at our data to see which one of the parameters may be off. Whoa. And so we're very high-tech farming. Oh, yeah. Got it. So, and you're growing hydroponically? Yes, we are. Wow, cool. So, what kind of production are you looking at, volume-wise? To give you an example, our lettuce room at full capacity can do 12 butterhead or bib lettuce per case, about 1,000 cases per week. 12,000 heads of lettuce a week? Yes. <laughs> wow. And that's, that's just one room. That's just Our one. basil room uh -huh. can do about 24,000 plants per tower per month. Oh. And we have seven towers. Wow. So hydroponically, and I'm looking at a picture of you. I've got a photograph of you in front of me smiling at me with your Green Sense Farms apron on. And everything is pink. What's that about? One of the reasons we're able to have such high technology is we've picked partners and, and we've broken down the individual components that make up our farm and have uh, negotiated strategic uh, relationships with them. And uh -huh. one of our partners is Philips, who provides the LED oh, lights. And nice. so if you, look at, if you look at the LED lights, they consist of red and blue diodes. Yep. The red and blue diodes are proportional mm -hmm. to accelerate photosynthesis in leafy greens. Wow. By only using the red wavelength and blue wavelength, our lights are much more efficient and they produce a lot less heat. Oh, if you yeah. have a white spectrum, mm -hmm. you have the full spectrum of light, but it turns out that the plants don't need all that light spectrum. They just need the red and blue. Hey, so, of course. so our lights burn cool. They burn for uh, 18 to 22 hours. And oh when you gosh. touch them, they're cool. So they use a lot less heat. They produce a strong par, which allows us to uh, uh, grow our vegetables uh, year-round. Wow. And they use a lot of less electricity. Yeah. Wow. How but cool. people love the pink lights. It's sort of like a car wash. Why do you, you go to a car wash because of all those bright flashing yeah, lights? Yeah, exactly. People come to the farm. They love the lights. And we've been the benefactor of probably 100 stories. We've had both of the major media 
radio, congratulations, TV, newspapers. They, and it's not us. It's it's the lights. It's oh. like having an exotic car. They they don't like you. They like your they, farm. They like your car. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I have one question that might be burning on our listeners' ears right now, um, and that is how is the food different that's grown this way than in the ground? That's a complex question and it's hard to quantify, mm-hmm. but it's easy to do on a qualitative basis. If you taste our plants mm-hmm. and you smell our plants, they're fantastic. And that's why one of my happiest parts of this job is getting chefs to walk through our farm <laughs> and, and, and pick great? fresh produce yeah. right out of the tub. Yeah. And, NBC First Look did a great story on us. Uh, not only did I get a chance, an old guy like me, to hang around with the lead singer of the Pussycat Dolls, who Ooh. was the interviewee, but I had the executive chef from Italy, who's one of our customers. Oh, I don't know if you're familiar with Italy. No. Well, Italy, Google Italy. Italy is a, a multi-billion dollar operation. Oh, is that uh, all? They have over... They have 30 stores around the world, and basically they have the best Italian food exported to that store. And in that store, it's about 40,000 square feet. Uh It's a destination center. The average person spends three hours and probably $500 there. Uh, They have 10 to 12 different restaurants, like a salumi bar, a fresh fish bar, Mm -hmm. a a, a fried fish, a pizza bar, fresh pasta, a a gelada, a coffee. (laughs) I mean, it's just a food paradise. You can uh, buy a glass of wine, walk around, do some shopping, do some eating. And and it's a very high quality restaurant. Uh, And it's uh, run by Mario Battaglia, the the, uh, celebrity chef, Lydia Bastaccia. And we're very happy that they're one of our customers. And they have a produce section, and they sell our produce uh, oh, in Italy nice. in Chicago. And so the executive chef, again, if you want to Google NBC First Look, Green Sense Farms, uh-huh. you'll see Rob Wing, the executive chef, came with Ashley Roberts, the lead singer of the Push the Cat Dolls, to our farm. And they picked produce, and then they brought it to uh, Italy and cooked it. And it was uh, a nice. great show. And, and that's what I like best is when those yeah. chefs come, they see this fresh produce, they smell it, they, they smell taste it, eat it. it. Yeah. I'll tell and you. so that's how I compare it. And the reason why I say, you know, I'll get down in the weeds here, but this yeah. is where it gets complicated. Depending on the fertilizer that you pump in, you you can elevate or lower the nutrients uh, that are in the plants. Right. And and because they're high or low doesn't necessarily mean they're they're better or worse. Uh-huh. There's a range that the plants need to be in. When we do an assay analysis, our plants are within the range of field plants, but that analysis can't really dictate how how nutritious and healthy yeah. the plants are. It really has to be done through a taste and taste. smell test. Yeah, there you go. I'll tell you what, I've been I've been a grower for a long time here in Phoenix. I started I planted my first garden in 1975 and in the late 90s and early I guess we're calling it the aughts, right? In the early aughts while I was getting my degrees at Arizona State University, I was growing food in the yard and taking it to restaurants and local farmers markets and I'll tell you there is nothing better than growing stuff taking it to a local restaurant and then going back for dinner that night and having your food on their plate. It, it is yeah. and, and- we do farm-to-table dinners quarterly. Oh, uh, there's nice. a number of, of, of small restaurants in our area that really uh, focus on farm-to-table food. Uh-huh. And we challenge the chef to use our greens in every course of the mm-hmm. meal. And they've nice. just done wonderful jobs uh, having a, a green-based appetizer yep. to a green dessert. And uh, so I really Ooh. love these chefs. They're so creative. But I have to tell you, I was just recently in Phoenix, but more importantly, I was down in Yuma with the lettuce farmers. Uh, oh, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what an education I got out oh, of Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. The Yuma, the Yuma and Southern Arizona and Yuma area uh, grows, what, 80% of our greens in the wintertime here or something? It's, it was fascinating. I want to yeah. give a shout out to Julie Ingle, president of the Yuma Economic Development Corporation. Ooh, she nice. gave me a fantastic tour. I am a indoor vertical farmer. I know how to grow indoors. I know nothing about outdoor growing. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was so schooled out there. And, and uh, my hats go off to Kurt Nolte, who is with University of Arizona down there. Uh, you know what? Stuff. I know Kurt. Wonderful guy. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> 
Yeah, he, he spoke at, I, I did the uh, Gip Gap training here in Arizona a couple, three years ago, and Kurt came in and was one of the speakers. In fact, I think he wrote some of the cu curriculum for that. Yeah, he's fantastic. So, cool. So why is this a disruptive technology, and how is it changing farming? Two ways. First of all, we've tamed nature and we brought it indoors. Uh -huh. by, by being able to grow indoors, we can grow 365 days a year and oh, harvest yeah. every day. So uh -huh. that's disruptive. You know, a farm can't oh, do yeah. that. Yep. Second, second, we've taken weather out of the equation. A farm can't do that. Oh, yeah. we've, taken, we've taken pests, we've taken animals, we've taken invasive species out of the equation. Oh, yeah. We've taken drought out. Uh, we've taken, uh, as I said, bad weather. So when you go out to these field farms, they, they have a lot to do to tame nature <laughs> oh, outside. Oh, yes, we do. Uh-huh. Indoors, we've taken a lot of those risks out of the equation. And not only that, we've been able to go up, which farming is oh, horizontal, yeah. so we yep. can get a much higher density so that we can grow year-round in a high density in a small footprint. So that's number one. So mm -hmm. now think of it as an a autonomous Uber cab. When you think of an autonomous Uber cab, you think, oh, a car that drives itself. Well... Yes, it does, but once a car can drive itself, uh -huh. you have to think about how do you apply that technology to disrupt society? Well, yeah. we're the same way. We disrupt it now with our business model by putting these farms at the point of consumption, which means institutional campuses where large volumes of meals are sold every day. Oh, so yeah. hospitals, yep. military bases, corporate and college campuses, wherever you're seeing large volumes of meals and then on the distribution side mm -hmm. at food processing facilities oh, right. and at, kind of at, the hubs. at grocery store distribution centers yeah. because when they're there, we've cut out the middleman, we've cut out transportation, we've cut out marketing, we have one direct customer and we've reduced touch points. So you know as you grow leafy greens, yep. keeping the cold chain is very important. Oh yeah. By keeping your produce at that point of consumption and distribution, you've you've increased the ability to always deliver it fresh, reduce touch points, and you've reduced your cost. So that's what's disruptive. Yeah, cool. Why, why ship lettuce from Yuma to New York right. when I can build a farm in New York at the 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 Wegman's distribution center? Yep. And, and then it goes direct to the customers. Yeah, and it's so much closer, so much fresher that way. Or in the future, why not build it at the Amazon distribution center ooh, since ooh, most ooh, of our food ooh. in the future is probably going to be delivered by autonomous cars yep. uh, through, through Amazon distribution. Or drones. The world's, change, the world's changing rapidly, oh my gosh, and, yes, and we're just excited to be part of that transformation. Nice, nice, nice. So in the realm of farming, you used a term that's really important that you uh, distinguish in, for us a little bit, and that's cold chain. What does that mean, please? For example, our lettuce grows in a room at about 65 to 70 degrees. Mm -hmm. The best way to preserve lettuce to have the longest shelf life is to constantly decrease that temperature as it's being packaged. So we harvest it, uh, we put it in a clamshell, the clamshell goes into a colder room at about 55 or 60, it gets put into a box, and then that box goes into a colder room at about 39 degrees where it's stored until the truck picks it up. Uh -huh. So once that lettuce leaves that 39 degree room, it needs to be kept at that temperature, you know, until the consumer purchases it. Right. So if a, a, a head of lettuce has many touch points and it gets cross docked, so it goes to one dock and then it's put onto another cooler and then to another truck. Right. If you break that cold chain, that lettuce starts to deteriorate, especially if there's condensation. Yeah. So if I have that lettuce at 39 degrees and it gets exposed to 100 degrees, you're going to see water start forming on that package, and water is very bad for leafy greens. Yeah. It causes rot and it causes decay. Yeah, they so deteriorate really fast. That's the cold chain. Yeah. You always want to you want to keep that always at that temperature or below. Perfect. 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 So. We're going to get to the equity crowdfunding and, and talking about financing this in just a minute. But I want you to tell us a little bit about your radio show. Where can we listen to it? What's the point of it? 
Uh, GreenSenseShow.com is the radio show. I've been doing it for about seven years now. When I started it, by the way, thank you. When I started it, the goal was to educate the public on sustainability. The idea that myself, I'd been in the environmental field my whole career, and mm -hmm. there were all these new terms that I had no idea what what they meant. Right. And so I figured by me interviewing these top people, it uh, helped educate myself and it helped educate the public. Uh, being a scientist, yep. you know, my role was to just interpret and explain some of these complex ideas in, in simple, understandable terms and make the show informative and entertaining. Uh -huh. So that's what Green Sense is. It's a 30-minute show. Each week I interview two guests that are innovators. They're either come from business, uh, public policy, mm -hmm. you know, civic, or, or they're individuals. I interviewed cool. a uh, young man from a Cal Poly Tech Institute, uh -huh. and, and he had a project for a senior class, Ooh. and he came up with this idea to make a compostable coffee cup, and he impregnated it with seeds so that when you threw it nice. away, it, it, it dissolved and created plants. What a great idea. Yeah, no and kidding. this guy did a lot of research on 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 picking seeds per the different geographies on what would grow best. And Ooh. he started a Kickstarter campaign nice. to fund this, and he exceeded his goal in two days. And so <laughs> I love telling stories like that. Yeah. On things that I, I like to find people that are changing the world. Yeah. Uh, we have a few mantras on the show. You know, One, it needs to make common and economic sense to make green sense. And two... Everybody thinks that to change the world, you have to have big ideas. Well, there's another way to change the world. You can have very small ideas multiplied by millions of people, yep. and you could create very large environmental change. So yeah. that's what I try to do is inspire people to make the world a better place to live you know, through this new technology mm -hmm. and applying it in a sustainable manner. So the show is probably just as much for me as it is for the audience because each week I learn I know, I isn't meet, that great? <laughs> I meet fantastic people, yeah, and and I'm very inspired that the world isn't apocalyptic, but it's yeah. this uh, it's this really exciting place, yep. uh, filled with opportunity. Yeah, hence I'm talking to Robert Colangelo today, and what you just shared is like so what we're up to here, just share, sharing really cool stories of people, people's, you know, so. Yes, and then uh, we so we're on thirty-seven stations coast to coast. Wow! And then, Congratulations. Uh, uh, we do a podcast, and then we are also produce a Green Sense Minute, which airs on WBBM, mm -hmm. which is one of the uh, leading uh, stations in the nation, and it's really a, a a quick synopsis of an interview. It's it just gets boiled yeah. down to the essence, so it's very very quick and short, and and uh, hopefully inspires people. Cool, cool. So. Great story so far, and we're supposed to talk about financing for indoor vertical farming. And so when we came into this interview, you know, we always talk beforehand, before we get started. And do you have an equity crowdfunding project that you're doing with Green Sense Farm? Uh, can you tell us about that and, you know, how do you get stuff like this financed? The institutional debt market has been constipated since 2008 yes, when we has. had our recession yep. and then it was and, and and I think the banks hide behind Dodd-Frank but they do anything possible not to lend to startups and yep. in their defense banks are low risk capital uh, banks right. are yep. looking for 95 to 98% of their loans to be paid back so that they're looking for a very small failure rate yeah. And startups are high risk and therefore don't fit the bank model. So, mm -hmm. I, so I understand that. But banks have been a lot more tolerant in the past. And startup companies, they need capital to fund these great ideas. Uh -huh. Or like I, 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 I try to find green dreams and make them come true. And it's very hard to find capital sources. About four years ago, the SEC started to work on a project to – democratize the capital markets and be able to allow the public to fund startup ventures. In 1930, there was an act passed that precluded anybody investing in a startup company unless it went through a brokerage yep. or Wall Street. Right. So, so what happened is that all these great startup opportunities 
were really uh, cloistered in the hands of a few. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it made an elitist group that had really insider information. What equity crowdfunding did is it broke that down so that the public now could invest directly into startup companies mm-hmm. without going through brokers and doing their own due diligence on a company. So just like we have disrupted produce distribution and cut out the middleman marketing and transportation, equity crowdfunding has disrupted the financial markets and now provides a very entry level source of capital to fund ideas. And we were one of the first 50 companies to take advantage of this wow. change in the regulation. It just happened a couple months ago. Uh-huh. Good for you. And we also set records. We were the first company uh, to reach its goal the fastest. And we have the highest conversion rate of uh, visitors to investors. And our website that we're on, there's only six approved portals. And one of them is startengine.com. Uh-huh. Startengine.com. And if you Google startengine.com and GreenSense Farms, you will find our website. And according to the SEC rules, I can't say anything about the offering. The idea is that they want to level the playing ground so all people get information equally. Uh And the only way they're supposed to get information is through the website. website. Unlike an IPO, which the offering uh, usually goes on the road uh, six months to a year in advance and pre-sells that offering to investment banking houses, the way you sell a OPO or an online public offering is you launch the offering and you direct people to the website so everybody has has the same access to the same information. So we're very uh, proud to be a early adopter uh-huh. of this new uh, financial vehicle. Like anything, it has its pros and cons, but in general, we think this really democratizes the capital markets. It provides a much needed early source of capital for startup companies mm-hmm. and expansion capital for expansion companies. I suggest everybody read about this, go look at these sites and uh, formulate their own opinions. Cool. So I'm going to boil it down because I can boil it down. Basically, if we go there, we can invest in your company and get a share of the company. Exactly. <laughs> and and you can invest, a bit, there, there's a minimum investment, get this, of only $100. And we wanted to make sure that it was accessible to people mm-hmm. because we've had about 100 stories done on us. We've been the benefactor of, of a lot of great press. Right. And every time a story is done or a TV show or a radio interview, people call us and they say, hey, I'm an individual and I'd like to invest in your company. Well, part of the reason we did this was was to give all those people a chance to take a, a small equity position in our yeah. company. And also... We are building a network of farms at college campuses, and we use this as a way way to test the waters to see if we could target communities for investment Uh so that as we build future farms, then we want the community at those universities. They all have good school spirit. Why not have them own a piece of that farm, support it, make sure their local grocers carry our product, Uh uh, maybe even offer them – direct sales of the produce. Yeah. Our, our next farm will be in South Bend, uh, ho- home oh, of Notre nice. Dame University. Yeah. And nice. so we're very, very excited about that. And a big part of that farm is we're creating an earn-to-learn training center. One of the big problems in the agricultural industry is there's a shortage of workers. Same oh, for yes. the produce Absolutely and food service yep. industry. We're going to fill that void by having people work in our farm 20 hours a week, mm-hmm. pay them above prevailing wage so they can put themselves through college and then graduate job ready to work in the food service, produce, and agricultural industries. Nice. And we've got uh, three more of those farms uh, slated around the country. Wow. I have to say that is brilliant and disruptive. Good job. <laughs> Good job. So I'm going to shift on you here, and I would like for you to talk about a time you failed how you overcame that fairy and what you might have learned from it. Well, I fail every day. I probably <laughs> fail more before most people get up because I get up very early, about <laughs> four every morning. But I'm okay with failure. You know, to me, failure is a learning lesson. Right. And uh, I've had three guiding principles in my career. You know, one is to take on projects that make the world a better place to live. Uh, 
to that. make sure I can make a living out of doing it. You amen, know, I, I, I'm grounded that. in market reality is that these just can't be high in the sky ideas. They, they have to be grounded in market reality. Yep. And then lastly, I want to be passionate and fun about doing <laughs> that. Amen to that. So my whole career has been in the environmental field, uh, starting environmental ventures. And mm -hmm. when I first started out, I would talk to people about the benefits of the environment and why they should invest in this and, and <laughs> how good it was going to be for the planet. And, and after failing multiple times with that pitch, I quickly learned they really don't care about the environment. Mm -hmm. you, you really need to lead off with the financials and you have to have a compelling, a cogent business plan that mm -hmm. makes financial sense. And then you could hit them with the environment. Yeah. So for example, with brownfields, you know, if I, if I tell somebody, well, I want to invest uh, $5 million in this contaminated piece of property because it's going to clean up the community and it'll make it a healthier and cleaner place to live. I'm probably not going to get financing, but if I come in with a cogent business plan that shows how I'm going to reposition that property from industrial valued at $10 a square foot uh -huh. to residential at $100 a square foot. Yep. And here here are my inputs and here is my delta. I'm going to have a much higher chance of financing my project. Uh -huh. So it took me a long time to learn that at the end of the day, people speak finance and that's the common yep. thread between everybody. If you want to make real change out there, You've got to be able to boil things down into a financial language yeah. that the decision makers understand. Otherwise, they're and not going to support you. And then you could sort of tag on the environmental reasons. And yeah. so that that was a big learning experience, and it, and it, and it, it was hard-earned. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So what do you consider your biggest success? I don't think I've had it yet. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Love that answer. Haven't heard that before. Honestly, haven't heard that one yet. So, you know, each day, you, you know, I, I read a, a, a book uh, called Body for Life, and in there it talks about how, how you want to uh, maintain your body to live a healthy, you know, vibrant life. Uh -huh. And, and it, it's uh, exercising six days a week and eating six small meals a day. Yep. And it talks about how you build muscle. And the way you build muscle is by constantly, you know, stressing your muscle. You, you, you have to constantly take on a higher level of, of weight yeah. if you want, want to improve your muscle. Right. You, you can't be stagnant. Well, I feel the same way with business and life. I constantly want to take on challenges that push me and make me scared. If, if I take on a venture and I'm not scared, then I should <laughs> be doing it. And, and I can yeah. tell you, the first time I was live on radio, it was in the Chicago market, a big market. It's hard to get on radio, as you know, uh, especially terrestrial stations. Oh, yeah. I was... I was petrified. I'd done public speaking. I'd written books. My first time on the radio, I was shaking, mm -hmm. and I could not. It felt like I was in a roller coaster. Yeah. But 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 you know what? It give it gives you your chops and it keeps you young because yeah. you're constantly challenged. So I really do believe I have not uh, had my greatest success yet. I believe that all my training and all my experience has got me prepared to take on indoor vertical farming. This is a great passion. It's a yeah. lot of fun. And, and, you know, we're changing the world. We just built our first farm in China. We turned it on two weeks ago. Wow. That was a huge success. It took us 18 months to build our farm in Portage. We got a farm built in China that I can't tell you how complicated it was. Uh -huh. uh, we built that in six months. Wow. So that was, I, I've had lots of successes uh, as an entrepreneur. The one thing I've learned is that you have to celebrate your successes. Oh, yeah. uh, if if you Amen to that. if you don't celebrate them, you know, maybe it's a pizza, maybe it's a glass <laughs> of wine, maybe, you know, it's a bike ride. But when yeah. you have these successes, you, you have to celebrate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I, I also am a serial entrepreneur. I've had, I think, 29 businesses in my life. Some of them lasted a sneeze and some of them, one of them lasted 22 years. So I totally hear you on that one. I am going to throw you out a challenge now about my last question. And I'm going to have you imagine that you're at the end of your life, which is a long way away. And I'm going to ask you that same question. What do you consider your biggest success? So between now and when you're not with us any longer, what did you create that's your biggest success? Well, I have to say my three kids and right, uh, they, cool. they, they are really great kids. Uh -huh. you know, my, my, 
and each of them has a piece of me. In, in, nice. a, in my past venture, uh, we ran about 124 conferences, and wow. my daughter graduated from MSU, and she runs a conference facility. So Ooh. I'm very proud that she followed in a part of my footsteps. Yeah. Uh, my son is a mechanical engineer at Purdue. Ooh. And, you know, is focused on sustainability and, you know, building a better world through yeah. uh, sustainable processes. Yeah. And my my little daughter, she's at Indiana University uh, Junior, and she is in SPIA, the uh, environmental affairs school down there. And so she's actually the one that probably followed closest to my footsteps. Yeah. So they're great kids. They're contributing to society. And they all want to make it a better place to live. Nice. So that's I know it may be cliche, but no, they really okay. are good kids. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. You did good. They, they're they going environmental on you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it was so funny. Uh, the other day, my daughter sent me this uh, quote in a class. Uh, uh, Tom Friedman wrote this piece that she sent me uh-huh. about, and, and she said, thank you, Dad, for changing the world. Yeah. And it was so funny. That day I was with Tom Friedman. And oh, I my God. And I said, Toria, you'll never guess who I'm with. I, and I spoke at my son's school at Purdue, and we had a, a great turnout. And so, again, when you could see your kids, yeah. see what you do, and they reflect that, I, I don't know if there's anything better. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Tom Friedman wrote? He wrote a number of books, but The Earth is Flat, yeah. Hot and Crowded. Yep. And he's talking about a new book that was just fascinating. The guy's a great thinker. Cool. So talking about books, I'm all about education. And I have to know, is there one book that's been influential for you in this process? Well, I've read lots of books, and they probably all have shaped me. Probably Willie Covey, uh, Bill Covey's uh, book, The Seven Habits of Successful oh, yeah. People. Uh-huh. You, you got to read that. But The book I really liked, and I read it in an airplane from Chicago to the West Coast, was called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, my gosh. Great book. And and what I I actually made a lot of money off of Blink. Wow. (laughs) I don't know. It resonated uh, with me. You know, the idea of thin slicing information and being able to uh, have pattern recognition. And so after I read that book, I started this uh, group where we would go into cities and I would put a, te- a multidisciplinary team together of investors, developers, insurance people, environmental consultants, environmental attorneys, landscape engineers, architects. Mm-hmm. And we would go into a city for a day. We would look at their brownfield site. And then we, at the end of the day, we would report to the mayor what was the highest and best use for that site. Oh, yes. What was the most likely development that can occur? Where were the data gaps and what were the action items that needed to take place to move those properties forward? And so uh, nice. we did a num- and we would get paid to do this. And we did a number of these and really took some very complicated projects and put them back to productive use. So I, I love Blink uh, and, and it just resonated well with yeah. me. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I would say uh, Winston Churchill, <laughs> never, never, never quit. Never quit. You know, a, a, yeah. as an entrepreneur, it's all about tenacity and persistence. <laughs> and I close every radio show with when you're green, you grow. What I leave off is when you're ripe, you rop. So you always have to try to stay young, be learning. And, you know, being green and naive keeps you in a mode that you're learning and, and you're progressing. You know, once you start to get ripe, then <laughs> you're going to rot. And, and that would be my advice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Robert. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the interview. And we'll have to have you on GreenSense. Oh, hey, I am all over that. Janice is listening and she's going to schedule that. All right. Thank so, you. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? You could always send me an email at robert at greensensefarms.com. Okay. Or you could go to our webpage, greensensefarms.com, and you'll you'll be able to reach me there. Perfect. We're going to set up a link on our website, urbanfarm.org slash IVF. Uh, so if you go to urbanfarm.org backslash IVF, 
We will have all the information there, including how you can invest in this amazing, amazing company. So once again, thank you. Thank you for being on the show today, Robert. And that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.